Murdoch University, Alumni After Dark, powering your mind. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Alumni After Dark. My name is Sam and I'm your new alumni host. On this episode, we're going to be discussing death, grief management and ways to prepare for our own passing. To chat to me about these subjects, I was lucky enough to meet with two alumni, Dr. Margaret Seeley, um, who was also a lecturer at Murdoch, as well as the co-founder of the Death Cafe held on the South Street campus. Margaret holds a fellow in thanatology and currently works as a clinical educator for the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement, as well as her own private counselling practice. We also spoke to Naomi Latke, who works as a psychotherapist at her own practice in Leaderville um, and has experience in grief counselling. So this was a really interesting discussion that may not be something that you've really thought too much about. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about how to navigate death, whether that be someone close to you or you're not sure when you should really be thinking about your own passing, then this episode is a really great first step in learning more about that. So let's take a listen. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be here, Samantha. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. I think this is going to be um, just a really interesting conversation. Um, Obviously, the subject we're discussing is death. um, And that is, you know, preparing for someone that we might know who's passing, Mm -hmm. uh, the grieving process, um, and even like thinking about how to prepare for our own passing. Um, and I think I said this to you before, Margaret, I've I've found this subject really fascinating um, because death is just not something that in the Western culture, I kind of feel we're kind of left in the dark a little bit, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Most of our major kind of life milestones we are prepared for, like mm. either mm. with our teachers or our parents, mm. um, but death is just not really spoken yeah. about. Yeah. And, you know, it could be one of the most traumatic experiences of our lives um and yeah, I, I, I did a little is. bit of I did a little bit of research beforehand just to kind of compare mm. cultures mm. um and you know in Mexico for example they have mm. the day of the dead okay. um there's, and there's even this Indonesian um the Toraja people who um, mummify their dead and then dig them up once a year for a celebration and I mean those practices are like a far cry from the western culture where I think that we kind of hide our grief from others and exactly Mm. why do you think that is why do you think that death is still a a very taboo subject yeah I think it comes down to the fact that I think death really challenges our idea that life might have some sort of meaning and purpose and as human beings uh, we're hardwired to have meaning and purpose um, so that's the first thing I think, um, and and I think that sort of notion is at the the heart of social psychology, for example. Um, and of course, meaning and purpose is also affected by our own culture that we live in. Um, and here, in in the Western world, you know, you were just talking about um, other cultures where they have a totally different attitude. But you know, since about the nineteen fifties, I guess we've been putting death behind clothes doors in the old days people would um, the families stayed together and were able to care for their elderly care for the sick Um, whereas now you know the nuclear family people move um, and that that's not able to happen so people are kind of um, in care facilities in older age um, or dying in 
in hospital or, or whatever. Um, so I think that's the problem with it. So Naomi, how can we prepare for grief, do you think? I think that um, grief is similar to letting go. It's in a way letting go of something. And I think um, in letting go of something, you have to look at what it is and look at all the good and, and not so good parts of it and really know it for yourself in relation to yourself. And then once everything is revealed, you know, in, in our minds, our minds get satisfied that the puzzle is complete, that there's no missing pieces, there's nothing that hasn't been looked at. And um, I think that's when people can let go of things. And so, do you think that, yeah. like, if we are preparing, say, for example, that we know someone is about to pass, what, what are some of the things that we can do to kind of prepare for that? So I suppose you could um, think about whether you've said everything you wanted to say to that person before they die. Uh, think about how you feel about that person and be honest with yourself. And then perhaps filter that and think about what you would like to say to them to say goodbye. So that's handy when you can say goodbye. Sometimes, you know, the person might be in a coma or cannot hear you, but then the fact of saying it is really important still. And that's where ideas like prayer comes in and being spiritual meditation, that you imagine what you cannot have. So if you cannot have something, your inner self needs to imagine it and go there because otherwise, again, the puzzle with the piece missing is something that niggles at your mind and the subconscious and then you might have dreams about it and things like that. And Margaret, how do you think that we could approach death in a healthier way? Um, I guess more as kind of a society. Yeah, I guess the first thing we need to do is really realise that death is actually a normal part of life. Um, that's the first thing. And I think we're not good at doing that, particularly in the West. Um, we think, you know, we've got mastery and control. We can put um, people on the moon. We can um, dam rivers. And so I think there's sort of this belief that people shouldn't get sick and, and shouldn't die. And yet we have to die. You can. What's going to happen to the planet if we don't? So um, I guess we just have to start being a bit more thoughtful and I guess mindful and rational about what what death really means and it's not really and and the the eastern cultures a lot of these and the religions know this that if we actually become mindful of death and aware of death as a possibility we tend to live life more fully uh, we can appreciate uh, life because we know that it's not finite. You know, we stop getting hooked into, um, you know, little petty, silly little things um, that that are meaningless um, when we think, well, where's that in the scheme of things? Um, it's nothing. So I'm not going to get into, um, you know, the, the point of fighting with my neighbour or somebody about something trivial. Mm. Yeah, great. And what? how about you, Naomi? What, what are your thoughts on that? 
since we all might be touched by death or loss, I think it's useful to actually do it in groups. So even if, um, you know, groups of people who may be going through a loss could get together, like even children's groups or adults. And then also sometimes, you know, when the whole family gets together about one family member who might be passing and then sharing stories and talking like that before and after the death, that's really, really useful as well. And, I mean, I think I've shared this already with you guys and a lot of our listeners know that um, I have a young daughter who, interestingly, she started talking about death and dying a lot earlier than I thought she would um, and asking questions about it. And I kind of struggled, I'll be honest, to have that conversation with her because I don't remember having those conversations with my family myself. So I didn't really know what was age appropriate. Um, and I, I just didn't know how to, to um, navigate it. So what conversations should we be having with our family? And like I say, particularly our children to prepare them for deaths in the family. Yeah, I think children haven't been conditioned by society all those taboos that we were talking about earlier, you know, they still haven't had that conditioning. And so it, it's not, um, it, it's just a part of life for them. Um, and of course, kids, depending on their de developmental age, uh, a lot of younger children um, engage in magical thinking. And uh, so, you know, anything's out there. And, and often, if there's something happening um, with grief because somebody has died, they may um, ask questions about that. They may cry and become quite upset. But within minutes, they'll often move on to something else too and be playing and laughing again. And people think, oh, um, they're not grieving or uh, we should protect them from it. But it's just the way that kids are, that different developmental stages, they'll, they'll react very differently. Um, but they are human beings. They do feel they um, have capacity to rationalise and reason. And so we should... Um, speak to them about it and I think grab at all of those little teachable moments that pop up so you know when the budgie dies or the goldfish dies or um, you know the neighbor's dog um, any of those things if there's something on tv it's actually instead of protecting them from talking about something traumatic actually talk about it and it's okay I think to say I don't know. We don't know. Um, but that's a good question. And, yeah. and just, you know, just be open and talk about it. Because when we shut it down, that's immediately when they think, oh, there's something wrong here. And of course, because of that magical thinking, um, especially when children are younger, they, they often blame themselves. So this is my fault. You know, they're the centre of the universe, which is the mm -hmm. way it should be, of course, at that age. So they tend to... Um, well, it must be something to do with me. So I think that's why it's good always to be open and talk. Naomi, do you think that schools do enough in the space of teaching grief management? Um, and, and do you even think that it's it's the school's responsibility or do you think that that should lie solely with a parent? I think that schools probably don't do enough. Um, some Catholic schools um, might have a 
one of the Catholic schools had a grief club for children. And then at a certain time every week, those children would be collected who have been touched by grief. And um, even if it's impending, and they would do activities together in a circle and talk with a very quietly spoken teacher that used to run that. Um, and that was really nice. And the children would come back kind of, you could see they might've been crying, but they'd feel relieved when they come back to class. And um, I do think it's the responsibility of schools and society to um, teach a norm, which is like, I suppose we could call uh, mental health. If we want to teach health, that's a norm, even though we like to say, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have norms. But I think we, you know, not everyone will have supportive parents and that doesn't warrant someone to come into their home and help them. So if the schools notice something, you know, psychologically difficult for a child, um, it's their responsibility to help them. Same yeah. with healthy eating and things like that. They're yeah. the example, I suppose. And Margaret, when you, um, obviously you were a staff member at Murdoch University, you did something quite similar, didn't you? Um, the Death Cafe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I used to teach counselling um, at in the School of Health Professions um, and later the college. Um, yeah, so counselling and nursing. So Dr Ruth Wee and myself um, both were talking a lot about this. She has an interest in palliative care as well. And, and we were just talking about a lot of our students um, have to deal with this in, in their work day. Uh, and a lot of them didn't get the opportunity to have these difficult conversations or um, I guess the con they're not difficult conversations, they're conversations on what can be difficult topics. Um, and so that's why we decided that we would start the Death Cafe then, which we started, I've forgotten when we started that now, um, a few years ago anyway, um, to provide a space for the students and anybody was welcome to come, the um, staff and people from the community also came in um, and just have these chats over tea and coffee and um, people could talk about anything. And I recommend if you, it, it's a really good way. And I think Naomi just said earlier about, you know, having those conversations, joining groups. And so Death Cafe is a really great way to do that. Um, I'm not sort of holding them at Murdoch at the moment. The Guild have put up um, Death Cafe hyphen Murdoch. If any of you want to take a look at that, I regularly post um, a whole variety of um papers and news articles and conversations and things on all aspects of death and dying there. Uh, Fremantle Death Cafe that's run by one of our counselling students, um, Penelope Miller. Um, they have the Death Cafe at Fremantle at the More and More Cafe 
on the first Sunday of each month from 1 to 3 p.m. So that'll be this coming Sunday if anybody wants to pop along to that. Um, and, of course, Dying to Know Day, August the 8th each year, um, the Groundswell Project put a whole lot of stuff out on that. So, um, yeah, there's lots of those sorts of places that people can go um, and speak and and people may think it's kind of a little bit morbid but actually um there's a lot of laughter uh, at the death cafes so um all sorts of things get aired and talked about and it's beautiful it's nice, i think it's such a great idea yeah it's just um mm -hmm. it's so important especially for people who are grieving who may not have anyone to speak to i just think that's just such a mm -hmm. just such a wonderful thing so mm -hmm. um yeah. what do you think that we should be doing to prepare for our own death and like when do we start doing that i think that um again just being mindful that death is there um around the corner it's on the news every night uh, I, I don't know why we get it stuck into our heads that it's not going to happen but we do um so i think again this is where a death cafe comes in handy but um it, it makes you realise when you listen to other people's stories, wow, I better go and get my will ready. Um, so there's there's a website for people um, called Advanced Care Planning Australia. Uh, they have information and they've got a lot of resources that are pertinent to each state. It's one of those crazy things where it's different in each state. But, okay. um, yeah, it, it's got everything you need to know there about end-of-life planning. So, you know, what, what would I do? I don't have a, um, a terminal illness and um, I don't know when or I'm, I'm going to die or what I'm going to die from. Uh, but I think we can sort of think about if I was to get um, flattened on the freeway on the way home this afternoon and I was on life support, um, at what point would I want to be taken off life support? Uh, we can already start thinking of those sorts of trajectories of dying and write an advanced care plan about, well, if this were to happen, this is what I would probably want you to do. If I had dementia and, and wasn't able to be cognitively um, able to state my wishes, this is what I would want, I, you know, put I, I wouldn't mind going into a care facility or I don't want to go into a care facility. Um, I want my kids to care for me at home. So we can already sort of have those broad brush strokes. Um, and having done that, then we can make an advanced health directive, which um, takes precedent over everything else. If we have that, we can write it down. If, if I am on life support, I want it turned off. If there's no chance of, you know, getting back to 80% functional, whatever it is that you want. Um, so it's often a good idea to talk to doctors about if, if you're not a medical person to sort of help guide you with that. But having made that health directive, then you can upload that onto the My Health e-record so that if you do go into hospital, um, it's there. Um, there's other things that we should consider like enduring power of attorney and enduring power of guardianship. People often say, oh, well, I've got power of attorney, so I don't need anything else. But power of attorney is really only uh, for money. 
matters, paying bills, that sorts of things, if the person it's enduring, if the person can't make that, um, can't actually do it um, for any reason. The enduring power of guardianship is about the lifestyle decisions. So that's about selling the home so that mum can be placed into residential aged care. That needs to be done by the guardian, not by the um, attorney. So, um, yes, that's a little bit intricate. It's not too bad when you understand it but yeah advanced care planning australia has a terrific resource there they've got sorts of free webinars they've got a um, support phone line monday to friday and for people living here in wa palliative care wa run um, fairly frequent short their um, two-hour face-to-face workshops sometimes they're online workshops um, on advanced care planning um, what you need to consider what the documents are and how to um, go about sort of starting the ball rolling it's such a, and that's just the thing as well, it's such an important thing. Like you could say, mm. you could get, you know, knocked over by a car mm. tomorrow. Mm. Um, and especially if you've got kids, it's one of those things that mm. I guess because we don't talk about it, it's not yeah. at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, yeah. But it is so important. Mm. It really it is. is. Yeah, because um, people dying in test state, uh, everything just gets tied up. Um whatever that person who had died, whatever their wishes are, may not be probably fulfilled. Mm. Uh, and then for the, those left behind who are grieving and, and it's so painful, it just adds another whole world of pain to their grief, having to now negotiate, yeah. um, depending on the cost of the or the value of the estate, you know, maybe having to go to the Supreme Court for... Um, you know legal stuff and uh yeah it's uh, yeah really difficult and painful uh at a a time that's um yeah you don't want to be doing that extra stuff and Naomi um how how can we approach death in a professional environment so for example when a colleague uh experiences a death how do we kind of act in a professional way but also you know obviously showing sympathy and what what's the best way to, to approach that, do you think? I think that it's um, useful that um, we wait for them as opposed to, to approach the topic or wait for a time when things are quiet and maybe say, I've heard about what happened. I, I'm here if you would like me to listen or to talk about it when you need. Otherwise... Now, I'm really glad you're back at work. Yeah. Yeah. And then leave it to that person to approach and not bring it up or look at them in a sad way because I think it's important for their identity because some of their identity is obviously being lost in losing a person that their work identity remains stable. Yeah, you hear a lot of people kind of say if they are grieving that work is almost a bit of an escape from them, right? Yeah, yeah. And then if something comes up at work and they cry, they can choose who they would like to talk to about that. Last question. I feel like we could spend hours on this subject. Um, But as a Western society, how far have we come and how far do we have to go in approaching death in a healthier way? I'll start with you, Margaret. Mm, I think how far have we come? (laughs) I think we've actually regressed 
quite <laughs> severely um, since probably, like I said before, about the 1950s where we started uh, removing death um, as, as a normal part of life and sanitising death and taking people um, off to hospital and, and um, caring for them in residential aged care facilities. So, um, yeah, I, I think we've sort of gone backwards. Um, and so we've actually got to sort of come back from that now. And again, I think it's just really talking about it, not being afraid of it, you know, talking about death is not going to kill you. Um, and, and it might actually, as I say, going to the death cafes, you hear a lot of uproarious laughter. Um, and I can remember one day, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but um, I can remember one of the uh, young male students one day came along and somebody was talking about funerals and he says, well, that puts the fun in funeral. Um, <laughs> and I thought, well, actually, yeah, what a, what a lovely attitude. So, um, yeah, I think it's really just talking about it, knowing that talking about it is not going to kill you. And it, in fact, may just um, make things a little bit easier um, in that you can think about it and think, okay, well, what do I need to do uh, to protect my loved ones if something happens to me? Yeah. And what are your thoughts, Naomi? I think that, yeah, just talking about death is important and also I suppose talking about the different ways that different cultures deal with death, which can give us an option in the Western world since we're so multicultural here that people can actually choose um, their beliefs or even the way they want to celebrate um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, um, both of you. It's been really interesting. I've definitely learned a lot. It's been a, a real eye-opener hearing from you both. Um, so, yeah, thank you for chatting me today and sharing your insight and providing some really, some really great advice. It's been really wonderful. So thank you, guys. Oh, thank Samantha, you. thanks very much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope that you found this really interesting uh, and useful. As always, the resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the description of this episode. If you'd like to be part of Alumni After Dark or would like to suggest a theme for an episode, uh, then send us an email at alumni at murdoch.edu.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.